My father passed away about 6 o'clock last night, and had he died the day before, uh, we were ready to have someone else speak and would have done that. Um, About noon yesterday, I decided that it seemed that um, it would be maybe next week sometime, and then he died at 6 o'clock, which is very tough to pick up the phone and say to someone, will you preach tomorrow morning? Uh, so I just want to convey that uh, it's just the circumstances that uh, are the only reason that I'm here in some sense. Certainly not that there's not others that could do this and do it better today than I can. But with that, secondly, I also drew the conclusion as the day stretched on further and further and we kept up the vigil, that I could not finalize and do justice to Psalm 26 as was announced. And so that left uh, us to scramble and figure out what to do. Well, I've preached on Acts 6 in Michigan, Wisconsin, and at Richfield Bible Church. So I thought I was fairly well prepared to think about that passage with us today. We thought about it in a different context about five years ago, but I look at it in a different way today, drawing from some material that I've had. But I invite you there to Acts 6 with that explanation. Thankful for your support as a church. Um, I, by God's grace, am going to speak to you from this word. I, I... say to you that I, there is um, a grief that is very deep at this moment, and I'm going to try not to tap that. So pray with me as God would help me through this, just given the circumstances. I think this is what is before us today, and I trust that it will be a, a blessing to you as I believe it's been to some other churches here this year. But let's seek the Lord, for we need uh, His help. Father, we praise You for Your goodness to us in Christ. We thank You for the songs of redemption that we can sing, however imperfectly. We thank You for these prayers of confession and praise and petition. We praise You for the reading of Your Word, for the opportunity to give and be reminded that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We do not understand always your sovereign purposes, but we know that it is not Satan and it is not death that runs this world. We know that you are sovereign God in control of all things, and we come to this moment in weakness. We come to this moment in some confusion, perhaps, as far as our plan as a church. But we come to this text today and just pray that you would bless it, bless it in a way that we don't deserve as a church. Help me in my weakness to proclaim your truth as I've meditated on these words for some time and thank you for them. Thank you for the instruction that we find here and the illustration that we find of your church and its function. Lord, we praise you for the church of Jesus Christ and pray that in your mercy that you will now meet with your church, this church here, as you're meeting with others, and that you will aid us to accomplish all that you designed for this time together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Political scientist John Muller authored the book, 
capitalism, democracy, and the pretty good grocery. Muller contends that successful free market businesses are pretty good businesses, never ideal businesses. Businesses that strive for perfection invariably fail. Businesses that learn to live with imperfection, that learn how to handle messes and reject idealism are those that survive. Well, I know nothing about that, and this church is certainly no business. Yet I think in a similar vein, the church that strives for perfection is in trouble. And church members who hold idealistic expectations of a church's ministry are headed for grave disappointment. More than that, such members remain ignorant, I think, of God's sanctifying purposes. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, uh, drew this to our attention in a memorable way. As he, and think of just how he puts together here the disillusionment uh, that we have as believers as we walk in fellowship. He contends that earnest church members invariably construct these idealistic expectations of what a Christian community ought to be. Maybe you've come today with some of those expectations. Here's what the church should be. And then he says, God graciously shatters those thoughts. Puts it this way, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live, even for a brief period, in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. So churches that crave perfection script their own misery. But it's also true that churches that find their idealized expectations shattered enter into an opportunity. There is before them an opportunity for sanctification, for growth in the Spirit of God. Disillusionment creates an opportunity to learn to live together in healthy, as a healthy functioning community of sinners saved by grace and sanctified by the Spirit of God. Now in Acts chapter 6, we come with a courtside seat, so to speak, to such a situation. As the infant church of Jesus Christ runs headlong into the messy experience of disillusionment in the assembly. Perhaps we could argue, at least in a significant way, it's first season of disillusionment its first true internal problem dealing in this direction as we've as we would have noted the book of acts chapters 2 through 5 the infant church has been thriving there's the baptism of the spirit in chapter 2 there's the explosive growth of the church there's the miraculous powers there's the faithfulness in the face of persecution there's the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira and that's certainly the first case of real trouble in the church but this is just two individuals in sin and God enters in and strikes them dead in discipline with what result that people are afraid to join the church and people can't stay away they fear acts chapter 5 and they're attracted to the purity of the church so at this point as we come to acts chapter 6 everything is really working 
The church, we could say, is on fire in the best sense of the word. Everything is operational. Everything is moving forward. Everything is growing. And then we hit Acts chapter 6. And in this passage, a dangerous disillusionment besets the church. Verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It just doesn't ring like everything we've been seeing in Acts 1-5. through This is just a new day. This is a new situation. This is reality. The Jerusalem church comprised the believers from two distinct cultural backgrounds. There's the Hellenistic Jews. They would have spoken the Greek language, and many of them would have lived their lives, if not all of them would have lived their lives outside of the land. So they've come back to the land, and they are more influenced by Greco-Roman culture. So this is a little bit of a bridge for us, but there's a cultural divide here. They are influenced by Roman Greco culture, speaking the Greek language as they come back in. It's not to say they couldn't speak the Aramaic of the Hebraic uh, Israelites here, but their first language probably would have been Greek for most of them. Second element are the Hebraic Jews. The Aramaic-speaking Jews, it's related to Hebrew, they were proud of their adherence to traditional Jewish culture, and they had done the hard thing in some respects to stay in the land, and particularly here in Jerusalem where it was not easy to make a living. The Hellenists in Jerusalem, from all that we can decipher, comprise about 10 to 20% of the population. They were generally viewed as second-class citizens. You can kind of begin to read between the lines and see why this is the case. They were sort of second-class citizens. Now, those citizens, those Hellenistic Jews, are coming to Christ as Savior and are finding a home, a refuge, in the church at Jerusalem. They were often viewed, however, with suspicion in the culture, and we would wonder if they weren't held in some suspicion even within the church. In fact, it seems that they are not given the same treatment as the, with their widows as were the Hebrews. The complaint that arises, that Greek word speaks of grumbling. The, Hebrew, the Hellenistic members of the Jerusalem church had grown disillusioned with the church culture. It's amazing when you think about it, but it made no difference to them how much they revered the apostles. It didn't matter how much courage the apostles had shown. It didn't matter how much they had suffered for Jesus. Something wasn't right in the ministry of the church, and they grumbled with discontent. We're not being treated fairly. This isn't probably just the widows, but also those who knew them, and are surrounding them saying, in this church, in this assembly, in this culture, we're being treated differently. We don't have the same status, and we don't like this. We don't think it's right. The issue, of course, is their widows. In the economy of Judea at the time, it was very difficult to make a living, and many of these women will fill in some blanks here and realize that every situation would be different, But likely many of them had come back to the land with their husbands, their husbands intending to die there and to be buried there. And these widows, outliving their husbands, have also outlived their money. Widows in that day, in that setting, were not retiring comfortably. They were dependent upon others. And so, in obedience to the Old Covenant, the Jewish authorities would have been helping these widows. They would have given them money, Clothing, food especially, 
but even money and clothing where that was necessary. But one wonders if these widows weren't forgotten uniquely because they were Christians in that culture. So this then drew upon the love and the comfort of the church to supply what was missing for these individuals. And as that supply is taking place, people within the church are saying it's not fair. It's not evenly distributed. But how do the apostles assess the problem? I think how they assess it is very critical, very crucial to the solution. They assess that there is a deeper problem underlying the obvious conflict. With keen insight, the apostles read the, set, the situation as a temptation to shift away from the priority of their God-given task to pray and to minister God's Word to the congregation. This is what's going on, and someone not understanding the Gospel, understanding what Christ has done, you look at this and go, wait a minute, you guys are lost. This is about unfairness. This is a social issue. This is not fair. But notice how the apostles assess the situation. Verse 2, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Serving tables, that is helping widows with food, was indeed a problem in the church. But they see something much deeper, something much more significant. It's not right, they conclude. They don't mean by that it wouldn't be morally right, that it would be immoral for them to take meals to these widows. The Greek word would be better translated here, not fitting, not proper, not desirable. It would not be morally wrong, but it would not be fitting. Why? Because they would then be unable, serving these meals, to spend time in prayer and in God's Word. So we can feed widows physical food and thereby fail to feed the church spiritual food. That's not a good idea. That's not fitting and proper. And in fact, we kind of read, read between the lines here, it's subtly suggested that some in the church were thinking they only could fix this that they needed to be part of solving this problem on some level, but they say that's not how we're going to read the problem. It would not be fitting for us to give up preaching the Word of God to serve these tables. So they devise a solution. I needed to put verse 2 up with point 1 there, but secondly, the apostles propose a priority-protecting solution to the church beginning there in verse 3. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So, what are they doing? What are the apostles doing? How are they handling this social problem? One, we agree it's a problem. It needs to be addressed. Number two, we're going to act. This is the solution that we commend. This is how we're going to act. We're going to say there's a solution. Here's what we believe the solution is. Then thirdly, the apostles secure the church's participation in the solution. Select men, they say, to the church. Select men who are fit to oversee this ministry of meals to widows. What kind of man in the church was to identify? were they to identify? Whom were they to nominate? It is a man full of the Spirit and wisdom. That is, spiritually mature men who live skillfully. Now these, these are not, this is not the super spiritual elite. Somebody that's so close to God that they're unlike anyone else. Something like that. It's just those who are 
indwelt by the Spirit of God and living faithfully and seem to have the skill to administrate this matter. And then fourthly, the apostles approve and appoint. That is, we will approve your selection. There is probably a sense of a check on the church's desires here. And then we will commission these men to fulfill this important task. So you can't miss here the collaborative effort, the cooperative teamwork between the apostles and the church members, all working together on a solution. I don't think we have here a strict precedent. This is how every problem should be addressed. But what we do have here is something of a pattern. And that is that leaders lead and that the flock acts cooperatively working with the leadership of the church. So we don't see here a dictatorship on the part of the leaders. This will happen this way, period. And we don't see, on the other hand, the church dictating to the leaders, this is what will happen, period. They work together on a solution. And we notice this solution here in verse 4, and, or the, where it tracks. You will do that, verse 3, but here's where it tracks next. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So seven good men should be appointed to minister to these widows so that we are free to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That word devote speaks of busily engaging in, persevering in. Is that not amazing? These are the apostles. They have walked with Jesus. They've been in the best seminary the world has ever seen. And they graduated. They have been through suffering. They've been through difficulty. They know what Jesus taught and how He lived. They have seen it all. And what they say to the church is, we must prepare to teach you God's Word. We must prepare. We have got to spend time in prayer, and we must spend time studying the Word of God to be prepared to deliver it accurately and faithfully to the text. Week in and week out. The apostles say this. But they understood as anyone understands who feeds God's Word to God's people that it demands time. If you're going to eat a good meal, you don't go to fast food. Right? You're going to go to fast food because you're going to eat. But if you want a really well-cooked meal to eat at home or in a restaurant, it's going to take time. That's what they're saying in a sense here to the church. It's going to take our time. And we can't, we can't spend this time and spend, other, spend it in another way. Now, did you catch the reading, the connection here with the reading from Exodus chapter 18? Does Jethro say to Moses, you can't do this. This isn't working. We've got too much happening here. Find some individuals who will carry this weight for you. And what was Moses to do? He was to dwell in the presence of God, representing the people in prayer, and he was to teach them the law. So there were individuals within Israel who could take up the work of applying the law in various case situations. But your task, you should emphasize the teaching of God's law. So that the people know the law, they understand the law of God, and then it can be applied and it can be a shared responsibility. 
I'm not claiming that the apostles were drawing directly from Exodus 18, but the connections are hard to dismiss. Choose out individuals who will do this job. We will continue to teach the Word to the church and to pray. And no preacher will faithfully fill the pulpit over an extended period of time unless he diligently fills his mind with the study of God's Word. With the biblical texts put together chronologically through the Scriptures, systematically understanding them in the study of theology and pouring out his soul in earnest prayer before God. It takes that. And so, when, let me just say, by way of sideline, when we see Jesus stooped over the feet of the apostles, washing their feet, we recognize that there's no duty that is below a pastor. They should, called upon to do so, clean up vomit. They should clean a toilet. They should clear tables. They should vacuum the floor of the church. There is no task that is ever below a pastor. Having said that, a pastor's primary calling by God is to know the Bible. It's to minister God's truth to people. It is to labor in prayer with God, and we cannot lose this priority. And maybe it's not serving widows. Maybe it's some other calling where pastors can lose their way and begin to spend their time where it really should not be spent, to be distracted from their divine calling. The apostles set the standard here for us. They make it clear this cannot be. And the only way this is going to happen is if the church is mature enough to grasp this picture and embrace it as God's gift to them. It can be very common for churches in our day where the real expectation is for pastors to administrate, to run the business and make sure that it works well. And then to put together teaching, lectures, a word from the Lord that is basically what we want to hear, does not take much study of what God thinks, and simply tickles the ears of people. Such expectations are fairly commonplace, and we must resist them. And so there is here, I think, a call to encourage and promote a pastor's investment of time in the word and prayer on the part of the church. That the church needs to be mature enough to know this is what we need. What we need above all else. There's no job below Him. Not that. But what we know is important for us is that we are fed God's Word faithfully. That He's considering it, thinking about it, applying it, and seeking God in prayer. And what completes that first point is the second, and that is that the church steps up and serves. And here we have Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, and passages such as this, that the calling of the church is to do the works of ministry. It's a strange, strange conversation with Gordon Lehman, way, way back on week one for Dan Miller. I could just about call him Danny at that point. I was so young. But he came to me and asked where I would like to serve on the cleaning committee, on my rotation, which week of the month that I like to clean the church. 
And it was an interesting moment because everything in me wanted to send the message to Gordon Lehman, I will clean the church. That's not below me. I don't mind cleaning. I'm happy to clean the church. But it was a moment that had to be grasped. And I talked to him and said, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should put time into routinely cleaning the church building or am I here to minister God's word and to pray? And he, as would be known to all of us who knew Gordon, received that, grew from that, blessed that, encouraged that, and never asked me again to clean the church. Though I did as I would fill in for others back in those early days when we would do that. It wasn't below me, but it set a pattern early, a pattern that this church has honored through the years, and I thank God for that. As church members, though, stepped forward and covered some of the things that can be done, they gave me, as I was a single pastor at that point, the opportunity to spend more time in prayer and the Word. And so it's a call, in a sense, for the church to step forward and accept that responsibility. It is a call to realize that no task is too small. It takes many, and here, character, godly men are chosen to deliver meals to widows. But the goal is then for every member to be directly, consciously contributing to the ministry of the church so that God's family functions effectively. Well, we see then next that the solution is cooperatively implemented by the church, beginning verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. We have some foreshadowing undoubtedly with Stephen and Philip here. And all these names, in fact, are Greek. And it may be that they were all Hellenists drawn out of the assembly. We don't know. But we ask the question, as we must, I guess, are these men deacons? I don't think this was the official office yet at this point, such as we might find in Philippians 1.1. But I think the function of the deacon is inaugurated here, foreshadowed here at least. This is the very idea of what the diaconate is. The position these men take up here will evolve into the diaconate of the New Testament church. And the principle I think it's right for us to derive from this text, so we don't want to say this was the first election of official deacons, I think we can say the diaconate is an official ministry of individuals who labor to enable elders to minister God's word and to pray. It takes a certain individual to say, I'll do that. I'll give myself to some of the mundane, physical, hard tasks, and I'll lead the church by example and by effort so that we protect the preaching ministry of the Word, the prayer ministry of the pastors. As verse 6 indicates, the men assemble before the apostles in what is something then of a recognition service. The apostles place their hands on the seven to symbolize that the apostles and the church have authorized them to do this work. They, in a sense, carry with them the authority of the church 
as they, as they minister this way in behalf of the assembly. And we see then, finally, verse 7, the result. And I, I don't think verse 7 is here for no reason. I think there's a connection to what has preceded. And the Word of God, see the connection, we will give ourselves to the ministry of the Word in prayer, and the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think verse 7 helps us really even unlock verses 1 through 6. That is, it would be easy for us to read the narrative of verses 1 through 6 as if nothing more than a business solution highlighting benefits of the collaborative social efforts is all that's going on here. Work together, church. Get along together. But the truth is that the church is a tool in the hand of the risen Savior. And what's happening here in Acts 6 is that tool is being sharpened for gospel ministry. It's being bettered and benefited so that the gospel can go forward with great strength. The truth is that the church is displaying the influence of the gospel in its communal life by working to reconcile people and redeem problems, not go to war with one another. The problem that they were facing was not nearly as great as the problems that have split many churches apart and destroyed the fabric of those churches and tore down the relationships that are there. But what's going on here is there are people going to work saying we're going to work with one another, not against one another. There are two teams here, and they could have walked into the church and wore jerseys. There's the Hellenists and there's the Hebrews. We're not going to do that. We're going to work with one another. We're going to cooperate to see a solution. And I don't think it's an accident that this internal health spills out into the external success of the gospel, much as we see in 6-7, here also in 9-31. The gospel prospers as God's people reflect and live out the gospel among themselves. The gates of hell cannot withstand the gospel. So not only are there more and more people being saved there in Jerusalem, but even priests are following Jesus in great numbers. Great many of the priests became obedient unto the faith. This isn't the priestly Sadducees that we see in chapters 4 and 5 that are imprisoning Christian leaders and resisting at all costs. These are the normal priests, if I could say that. The What's the number? Um, about 8,000 or more ordinary priests, perhaps among the 10,000 or more Levites who were serving at the temple. What's happening is they come into the temple complex for their assignment, their periodic assignment at the temple. They're not there every day, but they get these assignments for a period of time. They serve and they go back to their families and raise their crops. But what are they seeing when they come on assignment? They're over there under that portico are those Christians. They gather there every first day of the week, probably early in the morning. And they are saying things. And as these priests began to study the Scriptures and put together what these Christians were saying, I'd like to believe that the separation of the temple curtain in the Holy of Holies maybe was influential as well. But they realized that the Old Covenant was split in two and fell to the ground. 
And there is now a new covenant inaugurated and administered now by the risen Christ. And they're putting this together with their own sin and the sacrificial system and recognizing that Jesus Christ was that final sacrifice for sin. What the whole system was always pointing to in these Christians as they, as they unfold the old covenant text and as they point to Messiah Jesus, many of these priests said, there's just no two ways around this. Jesus is Messiah. He is God's sent one. He died as the final Lamb of God. He rose from the dead and He lives today. And He's doing this. He's reconciling these people. He's drawing them together. And many of these priests are responding in faith. Can you imagine how they would have responded? This is a hypothetical. But could you imagine how they would have responded if they went into that assembly and just found war? Two warring factions going at each other, one thinking they're right, the other thinking they're right, fighting and arguing and bickering. What would they say? I can find this among fellow priests. I can, we can argue there. We don't, I don't need this group to create another argument. But what they saw there was peace. What they saw there were people who didn't get along and didn't see things the same way. And instead of going after each other, they said, let's work on a solution. How does the risen Christ affect the way we relate to one another? And they saw a different world and many were coming to Christ. So what we see in this familiar text, may we review it again and think about it again here today disillusionment, first of all, with the culture and environment of one's local church is common. That's not some unusual thing that has happened to you. You can't believe that a church would do this. You can't believe that this would happen. How broken is this church that there's a disagreement? Don't think like that. See the opportunity in disillusionment. What we must realize is that such trouble can improve the church if it's addressed biblically and lovingly. The goal is not a perfect church. We're a messy church. Every church has got sinners in it. All of us are. But the goal is to become a church that addresses challenges directly and innovatively as we collaborate in love. That, do, that is not always possible. I understand that. I realize it's idealistic maybe for some in some ways in some situations in some churches. But we've got to orient ourselves from the gospel to know that this is to be expected and it is to be seen as an opportunity that we improve and grow. And secondly, linked with that, collaborative and cooperative labor between leadership and the assembly reflects the reconciling power of the gospel. So rather than going to war with one another, rather than accusing and ridiculing, let's say, leaders by the flock or the leaders of the flock, or maybe there's some other faction within, rather than centering in on how we don't agree and what troubles are there, the shepherds love the flock enough to initiate, to serve her needs, to draw people together, and the flock labors with the shepherds to carry the work forward. In the world... Conflict always leads to war. It leads to hatred, to people against each other. In the church, it should stimulate our collaborative juices and lead 
to growth. Now again, of course, there can be doctrinal differences where there must be separation, but even there, there can be separation with, with charity, with grace. But where we run into trouble, let us not run away. And where we run into trouble, let us not take up swords, but let us say here is an opportunity to honor the risen Christ and to seek an answer. We see here thirdly, by way of application, the deacons and as the heavy lifters in the physical ministry of the assembly. It is a noble office. It should be seen that way. It's designed primarily to free up pastors for spiritual ministry to Christ's flock. And where churches misunderstand what the diaconate is, it's rare not to find tremendous trouble that follows. But where we understand this relationship, it's also rare not to find great profit. No surprise there as we seek to align our life with the New Testament calling. Number four, we see all members as servants. Let's consider it again. In a church that is to be fed and edified, there will be a work that is done by the whole assembly. And as the assembly works together, serves together, lifts the load together to accomplish what has to happen in any assembly of believers, where they are functioning as a family, where they are working together, where they are accomplishing things for the cause of Christ, not simply gathering for a show, but where they are functional as a family to accomplish good for Jesus, there you will find busy people. People who are active, working to see the larger picture. It's not about this church. It's not about feeling good about what I'm doing, feeling like I'm doing my part. It's about the work of the risen Christ. Remember verse 7 with verses 1 through 6. Where we as a church work together, lift the load together, we encourage the advance of the gospel. It really lies with each of us. Let me say then by way of application that what the church is doing here in Acts 6, what we want to do is to image Christ. The ultimate disillusionment. What is that ultimate disillusionment? Some of you come with experiences that are deeply disillusioning. You have been through divorce. You have suffered churches that have turned upside down and look more like a battleground than a place of peace. Some of you have come from places and situations and experiences where there is deep wound. But let us bring that harm and that hurt and realize that the ultimate disillusionment in this world was suffered by Jesus Christ. He created the human race. He created us to revel in the glories of His splendor and the majesty of His love. He created people to relate to Him, to know that love. As the love of the triune being flowed between the members of Father, Son, and Spirit, so God chose to spill out that love and to draw in people to enter that fellowship. But what did we do? We rebelled. We rebelled against our Creator. We became the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did Jesus handle this disillusionment with His enemies? 
not with his fellow believers. How did he handle this disillusionment with his enemies? With those in rebellion against him by their deeds, by their actions, by by their attitudes? He died. He laid down his life in behalf of the sinner. Laid down his life so as to reconcile us to God. He suffered the ultimate disillusionment. When he there on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the the love of the triune being, there was a desire to reach out, to bring in, and so people were created to fellowship there and in dying for his enemies. Jesus faced the ultimate disillusionment of loss of fellowship with his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that prayer so that we would never have to. While people might betray, while people might generate great disillusionment, God our Father never will. He will never abandon His people because Jesus suffered that for us. And when you begin to think that way and see that, that this is what Christ has done for me, His enemy, it affects the way that you treat those you don't get along with. It affects the way that you treat enemies. You love them. It it, it affects the way that you treat believers within an assembly where there's disagreement. It affects every relationship when we know the Christ who suffered the ultimate disillusionment of separation from the Father so that we'd never have to. I hope you never have to. I pray to God for every one of you as I pray for my own own soul that we would never have to face that separation. But this requires that you come into reconciliation with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ His Son and are washed by the Spirit of God. That's not some necessarily moment of great emotional upheaval, although it may be, but it is a moment of faith where you come to put your trust, your hope, and your confidence in Jesus Christ alone as the one that God has sent as the sacrifice for your sin. I pray by trusting in that message that you would come today to know that He will never leave you or forsake you. That He has paid the ultimate cost of disillusionment and that He will save you. You can know that with confidence today. Not because of who you are, what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what He's done for you. And to that message of salvation in Christ, I call you to respond in faith. For those that know Him and have prayed this morning, God, thank You for saving me in Jesus. May we pray that prayer now and rejoice in His salvation. But for you, you've maybe never asked Him. You've never come to Him. He's not shown you yet to this place the glories of His saving grace. I pray that today, today He'll bring you to see it and that you'll know I'll never be forsaken. Let's stand together as we pray.
We thank you, Father, for this message of truth. We thank you for the message of salvation that the early church proclaimed and that is our privilege not to adjust, not to change, not to update, but to protect, announce, proclaim, and rejoice in as we do today as a church. Bring us to know Christ as Savior. Those who know Him not shine the light of illumination upon their the, the eyes of their soul and may they see Jesus calling them to salvation, forgiveness of sin and security in your comfort. For those of us who know you, may we commit ourselves to live as the church of Jesus Christ in reconciliation and love. Bless our meeting here today, the time of fellowship to follow, the rejoicing with our graduates, the meal that we enjoy. May you bless it all and may we rejoice this day that Jesus is our Savior and that changes our eternity. May we give thanks and rejoice in one another's presence as we know that you, through Christ, have brought us together. In his name we pray.